So we're in this reading schedule and we're almost done, but many of you have joined up and said we're gonna read through the uh, New Testament during the summer. We're approaching the end of that, but out of that we've got this sermon series called Eight Verses That May Change Your Life. We're almost done with that series. We're gonna be launching into a pretty exciting uh, new series, but this is one of those, and there was a lot of John this week reading. Did you notice that? Those of you who are, uh, who are participating, the Gospel of John, but also the Epistle of John. Same author, but one is a Gospel that was written later, right be, uh, closer to the end of the first century, where John is giving a record or his understanding of the history uh, and significance of the life of Christ. But this is a letter that he wrote, 1 John, uh, to a region of churches earlier in his career. So that's where we're going to be today. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, through the first couple of lines of chapter 2. And remember, when John wrote the letter, he didn't have verse marks or chapter marks. It was just one continuous letter. My grandson Oliver, uh, so that, that's the, the, the message is uh, called, go, go baby, go is called hide and seek, and that's what we're gonna be. Now, my grandson Oliver loves to play games. And one of his favorite games, because we share a house, my daughter's family, she and her husband and two kids, and us share a house. And Oliver loves to play games. In the morning, usually, 5.30 or earlier, you know, we hear this little noise, and it's, he's standing next to my bed by my pillow. Papa, you wanna play with me? He's like, well, dude, it's 5.30 in the morning. Uh-huh, just for five, Minutes are three or two or one, he'll say. <laughs> and we'll usually play some game if I am gro not groggy, but he, his favorite game is hide and seek. So he comes to me and he says, do you wanna play hide and seek? And I try to say yes as often as possible. Here's the thing about playing hide and seek with Oliver, and I'll bet it's true of your little ones, your little nieces and nephews, or your grandchildren as well. Oliver is great at hide-and-seek, but he's much better at the seek part than he is at the hide part. Not because he doesn't know how to hide. Here's his problem. He can't stand to stay hidden. So he'll hunt for me when I hide for as long as it takes to find me. And I can just hear him walking around the house. Let me see, I tried in there and I don't... Talking to himself, trying to figure out logically what his next step is. And that's fine. But when he hides, if I take more than 20 or 30 seconds to find him, he makes little noises from where he is. Like he'll poke, that's one of his favorite places behind the chair. And if I know he's behind the chair, I'll usually come into the living room. Now, where is Spider? Where is that kid hiding? And you can just hear him holding in the giggle, right? But he, he can't stand that he's not being found because I've taken more than 12 seconds. So he goes like this and go, from where he is, or he'll go, boop, he'll make some sort of a noise, and he'll go, papa, and, or stick his head out, because he wants to be found. He cannot stand a prolonged distance between him and me. When he's supposed to be hiding and not found, he wants to be found. Now, I was thinking about this as I was reading 1 John, because 1 John deals with this issue of hiding. And I was thinking about how unlike Oliver, I am so often when it comes to this game of hide and seek that we all play with each other and then with God too. God, the consummate finder in humankind, 
chiefs at hiding. How unlike Oliver we are because we find it very easy to stay hidden or to hide more carefully. And the more God tends to pursue us and long to find us, the deeper we want to go in our hiding space. How unlike Oliver we are. And you know what happens? You start approaching your faith as though it's sort of rote. You know, it's right up there, right, it's on the list, right up there with you. Make your bed, you brush your teeth, you go to church on Sunday morning, you eat dinner at a certain time, and you're a Christian, and you do, try not to mess it up too much. But our faith, when it gets to that place, becomes sort of unalive. It becomes numb. It just becomes another thing that we do. Have you ever been there where you get to the place where you say, man, my prayers just seem like words. They don't, there's no pathos in them. There's no passion in them. And my worship, when we sing and when we reflect on Scripture and when I, <coughs> pardon me, try to take some time to contemplate and think and consider things, it's like limp. It doesn't have any power. There's no juice to it. And I'm kind of just taking one step and then the next step and getting through life. And you get, get to the point where you can often wonder, why is everything taking so long? Where faith is just a thing, it's not a thing that's alive. And we get to the place where when we feel like that, we don't know what to do. This sermon series is entitled, Eight Verses That Might Change Your Life. And as I'm reading 1 John, I'm thinking this is one of those verses, those sections of scripture that might change our life. Because life needs a change. When God is seeking, and we're hiding, and we're not really interested in being found, this is one of those texts we need. Because the next thing you know when you're living like that, you feel distant from him, you increase the distance. There really is no distance as far as God's concerned, but it feels distant. Faith that's supposed to be alive feels very dead. We sense no power to live a radically different life, much less any desire to live a radically different life. And it's for those seasons of life that I offer you this particular verse that just might change your life. And God reminds us in this verse that he does know what to do when our faith has drifted, has degenerated uh, to that point. This was one of the early memory verses for me. This is one verse pulled out of this section that we're going to read in just a second. It's basic. It's foundational. And it's rich. And it's a promise that's made. If we confess our sins. God is faithful, righteous, just. He'll forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a basic promise. And man, do we need to cling to that promise. Let's read the whole thing in context because we're going to linger there for a little bit. If you'll turn to 1 John chapter 1, if you're going to use, let's stand together and we'll read this while standing. Stand for the reading of the word. It's on page uh, 1129, 1129 in your pew Bibles. Or if you have it on your phone uh, or your own Bible, 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading at 
verse five. Read along with me silently as I read out loud. And remember, there were no uh, chapter breaks. So this is one continuous letter. And I'm gonna read through the first couple of verses of chapter two. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship or connection with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, that walk is a, a, a metaphor, an, a, an idea that conveys um, this, the way we live, the things we practice, the choices we make. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, we stay connected, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all of our sin. If we claim to be without sin, we, dece we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now that's the same thing said again, that quickly, right after it's already, uh, John has already said, it's pretty important. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not practice sin. But if anybody does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired and reliable message to us. Go ahead and take your seats. In those seasons of life, when things are going dry, whether you're a person who has professed faith in Christ and then things got sort of just eh, or you're somebody who has beforehand been interested in Christ and starting to hunger for something more. What do I do with this information, with these things toward which I'm starting to be inclined, these things that I learn about God? For people in that season, God, that season of life, God knows what to do to revive things. And I want to talk about just a couple of practices that we can employ to make what was once alive has become something other than alive, alive again. Here's the first one. Come out from behind the chair. Learn to love being found. Practice the discipline of being discovered. Become impatient with hiding, aware of your hiding. In other words, begin to do things like this when God wanders by and you're hiding. <coughs> boop, boop. I'm right here. Oh, I'm right here, and I kind of don't want to be found, but I need to be found. That's what the text means. That's what John's talking about when he says, God is light, in him there's no darkness. Think of this, God is seeing. God is being able to have the lights turned up bright enough in life to where the dust in the corners shows. There's no avoiding it. There's no pretend. You can live life by cleaning the dust out of the corners or you can live life by turning down the lights so nobody sees it. But the text is saying, if you want real life again, live with authenticity and truth and vulnerability. Be found and love being found. 
Be more afraid of the light than you are of the darkness, if afraid can be a positive thing. That idea of walking in the light that's found in verses 5 through 7. So here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. It means living with an awareness of Jesus. In other words, I'm living and I'm aware that I'm never alone. Jesus is always with me. Jesus is seeing, speaking, watching, ducking, wishing he weren't with me sometimes when he looks at what I'm doing and how I'm responding. Brenda, uh, in fact, now that I think of this illustration that is not in my notes, but I'm just thinking of it, that's when I always get in trouble, you know, saying things that are not thought out ahead of time during the week. I'm not even sure I confessed this to her and asked for forgiveness, but we were in the desert a couple weeks ago taking vacation, and Brenda goes out shopping with her friend and comes back with a big six-foot-long wooden trailer in the back of the and we don't, I'm, trailer, big six-foot-long wooden table that she found at a consignment store, and they're everywhere in Palm Springs. She comes back, and she wasn't going out looking for a table. I mean, she was going to get milk or something like that, you know, and she comes back with a table, and her and her friend are beaming and happy. I am not beaming and happy, <laughs> because we already have a table, a really nice table down there. And now that table, guys, you're going to understand this, I know in my mind where that table's going to go, because it can't go in the dining room. It's going to go in my garage, and men, you know that's just wrong. <laughs> the garage is like everybody's dumping space, and the garage, ladies, man, a garage is a man's palace. That, you've got to just protect that place. You can't be stuffing baby toys and things in the garage, but that's for another sermon. That was going in the garage. And what'd you bring that home for? She said, well, but Josh, our son needed a tailor, a table, and this is just like the one he said he wanted to have. But Josh is 600 miles away from here, you know? I mean, how's this gonna get from here to there? And when it gets there, and I think I was much louder than this <laughs> out in the front yard. When it gets there, where's it gonna go? Don't answer that. I know where it's gonna go. It's gonna go in Art's garage. And we're never going to get this $100 back. And I'm just going off. I'm so rude. And, I, and if any of you would have seen me talking to my wife the way I talked to her that day, you should have slapped me down. You would have, I hope. Because the last thing that great lady deserves is that kind of terrible response from her husband. Amen. That didn't sound like Brenda's voice to me. So honey, please forgive me, or you're here, I know you're here somewhere. Please forgive, yeah, sit down. Please, <laughs> she stand up, here I am, you. What was my point? <laughs> Gotta come out of the light and walk like Jesus walked. Fortunately that day, as is usually the case, my wife remembered Christ's teaching to be a peacemaker. And instead of throwing gas on my stupid silly fire, she threw water on it. It's always good to be married to somebody who tends to be wet wood, not easily ignited, and then you get peace. And I walked into my friend who had watched the whole thing, who was our guest there, and we had been talking about kingdom of God that day. <laughs> and I'd been teaching him, I'd been saying, no, the kingdom of God is entered in moments and decisions. And I walked into the kitchen late this afternoon, I walk in and I said, Bruce, I'm not entering the kingdom of God right now. I'm stepping out of the kingdom of God, help me. <laughs> Live like Jesus lived. She did in that moment, I didn't. 
And occasionally that happens. Walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. It means be aware of the presence of Christ in all that we do. And I think that was one of those moments, I'm sure it was one of those moments where the Lord was there, but just shaking his head, caressing Brenda, and giving her the strength to outlast my sophomore rant. Another thing, you live not only with, the, with an awareness of the fact that Jesus is there, but you live in such a way that your community sees how you live. Walk in the light means live or walk where people can see you living and walking. That's one of the things Jeff was talking about, that we believe you grow best, move toward Christ when you're doing that in community. And living in community is living in such a way, for instance, with my friend Bruce, who could, he could see it, he could say, uh, that's not what we were talking about this morning, right? I mean, just be clear, that's not what we were talking about. That's the opposite of what we were talking about. <clears throat> Every once in a while, Jeff or Ben will be at a meeting together or something, and we live in such a way that when one of us responds in a meeting, a, discuss a discussion, the other can come and say, that was really well said, or I'm not sure that's the kind of people we want to be. One time I was uh, talking to one of my sons who had done something, I don't remember what, but I know where he learned it. And I went to him and said, now let's be clear, that's not the kind of men Greco men are trying to be, right? That's not the kind of man we're trying to be. Let's rethink that one. You live with an awareness of Christ, walk in the light, be restored. Have that numb relationship come alive again. Confess your sins. Walk in the light as he is in the light. We walk with an awareness of the presence of Christ. We walk as much as we can in front of the community. Live with community. And the community can say, that's a good direction. That's not such a good direction. Let's go a different direction together. It's one of the habits we need to practice. It was the great Fulton Sheen, the great Catholic theologian who said, ever since the days of Adam and Eve, humans have been hiding from God and then saying, oh my, God is so hard to find. We're the ones who are hard to find. When life has become numb, faith has just become a dusty habit, practice and employ this. Come out from behind the chair. Live into one of those values that our church has. One of the key values of Brent Covenant Church is that we live with authenticity. By that we mean no pretending needed because only in a church where people are real are others free to be real as well. Many of us have experienced Christianity that's sort of fake and pretentious. Our son Josh used to say one of the reasons I struggle going to our church in Colorado when he was a, an adolescent, was in high school, he said it because it, it seems that so many people go only to prove they don't need to be there. They're not real. And I don't feel free to be real. We also mean by authenticity, no pretending allowed. So no pretending needed, no pretending allowed. I hope you've seen our church creeping toward that, or at least trying to live uh, that way. We don't do it perfectly, but no one was ever set free because others pretended they were perfect. We are all wearing chains, folks. We need to be aware of them. 
and no pretending unforgiven. Authentic communities forgive those who realize they've been pretending. Come out from behind the chair. Second and final practice to employ when things, well, are just getting a little bit dusty or life is getting a little bit hard. First of all, come out from behind the chair. Secondly, believe the ollie ollie oxen free. Remember hide and seek? Ollie ollie oxen free. Now different parts of the country, that phrase is a little bit different. In our neighborhood, it was ollie ollie oxen free and we had absolutely no idea what that meant, why it was phrased like that, or where it came from. Do you, you ever wonder about that? Ollie ollie oxen free, what the heck does that mean? I mean, I know that I don't have to hide anymore when I hear it, but wh- why didn't they come up with something like, okay, everybody who hasn't been found yet may now come here free. One th- there's several theories about this. One, does, it's a, uh, a, a, um, an alliteration, a misalliteration really of a German phrase that means, come on out everybody. One that I think makes sense to me is that it's, uh, it's the result of an evolution of a phrase that's Old English, which was all ye, all ye, outs, plural, outs in free. All ye, all ye, outs in free. And that was actually a phrase that kids used to use uh, when playing this game. And one theory is that all ye, all ye, oxen free, which doesn't mean anything to us, is really an alliteration of all ye, all ye, all the outs can come in free. When we were kids, though, in our neighborhood, there was a little deception going on. Because one of the kids, might have been me, but maybe not. (laughs) The legalist among us realized, hmm, some of the kids that I find when I'm it, and I can't find the other kids, I know a way to find them all. I'll get one of the other kids to yell, ollie ollie, oxen free. And really, it wasn't me who yelled it, it was somebody else. So technically, I didn't invite all the outs to come in free. Melody Lima invited all the outs to come in free. Or Robbie Lima, her brother, which would be a little easier to to believe that it was art. And they would hear that, they would all come running in, I could tag them all and I could win the game by means of deception. So in our neighborhood, Good hiding places were not the only thing that was important. Voice recognition became very, very important in our neighborhood because otherwise you were going to be duped, tricked, and found. And I like the idea of voice recognition because when it was the person who was actually in charge and free and empowered to bring people in for free, and you knew that voice, you could depend upon the promise. When it was somebody else, you couldn't. And here you have Jesus, in effect, calling out to all of humanity, hey, come in free. Actually, it's not free. He bought the right to bring us in and to invite us out of our hiding into the light and into renewed and restored relationship with him. But he calls out to us. Listen to what it says from First uh, John in chapter one, verse eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Time out. Come on, man. Don't we already all know that? Don't we know that? 
I know everybody else is sin, but I'm not sinner. What I'm doing is not sinner. There's no brokenness in me. Or I never make a mistake. I never wound anybody. I never cheated anybody. I never have told a lie. Whatever your definition of sin, don't we all already know that none of us is without sin? We screw up. And we wound. And we look back at life and we scratch our heads and we say, oh man, if I had that to do over again, I wouldn't do it that way. I would, I would have said something different to them. Or, well, I do that sometimes when I think as a 63-year-old man about the decisions I made as a 16- and 17-year-old boy, and my heart is really heavy. Oh, wish I could go back and do a redo. All of us sin. If we say we're without sin, we lie, we're fooling ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins though, and the author means to do this in that little swing of words. If we say we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves, but in strong contrast to that. However, if we do the opposite of saying we have no sin, of confessing our sin. And here confessing isn't going into a booth necessarily and saying here I have sinned or sitting across from a sister or brother, that's a part of it. But the meaning here, the foundational meaning is this. If we agree with God that action or decision A is sin, if we confess, I'm not saying I don't have sin. In fact, I'm saying, yep, that was sin, just like you said. I didn't. I yelled at my wife when she bought that table for our son because her doggone generosity just ticks me off sometimes. It's going to be sitting in my garage, taking up space. That wasn't sin. It wasn't sin to talk to my wife like that. It was just me being myself. It was just me being Italian. It was just me being authentic and real because, I mean, after all, I really was boiling inside. So for me to show us a result that doesn't boil as well, how authentic is that? I mean, do you hear the justifications in that? It wasn't sin. And the text is saying, that's the kind of thing that makes your relationship with Jesus dusty and your prayers go nowhere and your worship limp. There's a distance that's created when we're not real before God because he's in the light. We need to be in the light too. He's there where he, we can, he can be seen and we need to be seen. And then he's hollering, come on out from behind the chair, folks. I bought the right for you to come out from behind the chair and be forgiven. But don't pretend you weren't hiding behind the chair. Say, yes, here I am behind the chair. I was hiding, and it's hiding, just like you said. I agree. I confess. There's an alignment there, an agreement there. One of the things we need to do is to quit lying to ourselves. Don't justify away our sin. I was just being authentic. No. I was being rude and unloving and violating my marital vows, and giving my wife exactly the opposite of what her 40 years of faithfulness deserved from me. Now, it's not the norm. It was a moment, but it was a bad moment, and it was sin. And if one of you was there, you should have smacked me down, like I said. So that's not the kind of men we're going to be. And that's not the kind of husband Brenda deserves. Well, sin. Quit lying to yourselves if we confess our sins. The other idea is the confession, it's antithetical, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. You think 
man, if I'm hiding and I confess that I'm hiding, whew, that's not good, that's bad, that creates more of a problem. But here we're told that it just does just the opposite. If we confess our sin instead of pretending there is no sin, when we all know there really is sin, and we really do mess up, why, why create more pressure by trying to maintain this false notion that nothing I do is ever wrong, or I don't need to apologize or ask anybody for forgiveness? That just adds more pressure. It adds more pressure to any relationship. Those of you who are married, you know it adds pressure to your marriage relationship. To good friends, you know that that destroys friendships when you have a wounding and it never goes dealt with and never unconfessed because I didn't do anything, you did it, it's your fault. In this case, confession doesn't result in more problems. Confession results in healing. It results when we deal with God in forgiveness. Just the opposite of what we're afraid of because the text tells us God is faithful. In other words, he keeps his word, he fulfills his promise, Man, if you can't trust Jesus, if you can't trust the word of God, as recorded here by an apostle, who in the world can you trust? Other people might not keep their promise. Other people might call somebody else and say, hey, you say all the oxen free, oxen free, but when they come in, I'm going to nail them, but not God. He's faithful, and he's just, and he's merciful. And the only thing that wounds us and keeps us buried is this pretending that we do, that there's no brokenness in me. And we attach ourselves maybe to churches or Christian communities that encourage that. Don't go confess your sin there, you're gonna be judged forever, they're gonna write it down, they're gonna, you're always gonna be known as uh, the action you committed on your worst moment. Jesus doesn't do that though, just we do that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just. Believe in the Ali Ali oxen free, precisely because it's Jesus who offers it. And then let me finish with this. If we go on, remember I said there were no chapter breaks? It says this in chapter 2. Same letter, same context. My dear children, I write this to you so that you can be encouraged not to sin, or not to practice sin, or not to go on sinning. But if anybody does, now listen, look at the position of Jesus and the activity of Jesus. If anybody does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There you go. That's the activity of Jesus, not, look at that Greco, man, do you see the way he talked to Brenda? My goodness. Bring me my lightning bolt. No, according to this, when Jesus hears me say, why do I do that stuff? That was so wrong. I hate that in me. I want that out of me. I agree with you, God, that was inappropriate. That was so wrong. Forgive me. And then he hears me say that to my wife. He doesn't reach for the lightning bolt. He stands up before the Father and says, that's, that's one of ours, that, that guy. Warts and all. Remember? He hid himself in me. He made a decision in 1975 while he was working on that broken axle in his truck. And he said, before I even understand everything, I don't know why I deserve this, but I choose to receive you and the promise you make to me, Jesus. That's what being a Christian, becoming a Christian is. It's not knowing a good history of religion and having all the right theology and signing on to all the right doctrines and concepts. It's at some point making a decision. A decision has to be made. 
in order for you to cross over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to become a follower of Jesus. And it sounds something like this. Jesus, I believe your promise. I want to be forgiven. I want mercy and grace. I know you offer it. Will you please accept me because I accept you? And from now on, you're my leader. I will follow you. That's a confession. And when that confession happens, we have this advocate that yells, jumps up and down. I could just imagine him before the father in the throne saying, that's ours, that's our daughter, that's our son now. Hold tightly to them. Let's offer them and give them mercy and grace and forgiveness and forever they're ours. No matter what they do from now on, they're ours. I'll always advocate for them, but we'll still hold them accountable, but I'll advocate for them. And we'll forgive. Man, confession doesn't, push you further away like it usually do, often does in some of our relationships when it comes to God. He promises. No, 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 no. It restores closeness. Believe the offer. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. When Jesus offers it, you can count on it. There's no trickery going on there. Reminds me of an Old Testament text that I'll call us to and finish with this. In Genesis chapter 3, listen to this. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's this natural inclination. Now, where'd that come from? To hide themselves when they heard the Lord. It used to be, in an earlier portions of the text, you have this idea of uh, a God in the garden and nobody hid themselves. They ran toward God when they were in the garden. Then the Lord God called to the Adam and Eve, and they said, where are you guys? And he said, they said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, so we became afraid because we were naked, so we hid ourselves. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, listen to this justification. This, I'm just being Italian, man. The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, you know, the one you gave to me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. The Lord turns to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent gave it to me and I ate. You know, of all this justification and hiding, here's the thing I want to point out. And I want the band to come on up uh, uh, because we're going to receive communion in just a second. That hiding is only natural for humankind after the fall of humankind. It's not the way we were designed to live. How are we designed to live? Come on, Lord, you're safe. You're true. You're just, here. I can't trust a lot of people, but I can trust you. I can admit to you when I'm wrong. I can align myself with you. Restore me, God. Find me hiding behind the chair. Find me soon. And forgive me.